right, all right. Join the Journey family, friends, and guests. You're listening to Join the Journey podcast with your host, Emma Daughter. Thanks for joining. Today, we are taking a look at Proverbs 5. And if you're following along in a Join the Journey guided journal, you know that today we are answering the question, who is the forbidden woman in Proverbs? But before we get there, I've got three announcements, which will make today's episode a tiny bit longer. Number one, as I mentioned, guided journals for this year's reading plan are here. If you haven't yet ordered one, it's definitely not too late. So we will put the link in today's episode description. It's full of additional commentary and articles to aid you in your study. Announcement number two, we would absolutely love it if you left a review on this podcast. Our goal is to hit 1,000 reviews by the end of January, and we are on our way. Leaving a review helps new friends more easily find Join the Journey, and sometimes those new friends are getting to do a deep dive and study the Bible for the first time. So to those of you who have already left reviews, thank you so much for partnering with us in this mission to help new friends find God's word and study it well. And announcement number three, we launched a Join the Journey Instagram and would love to connect with you at underscore join the journey underscore. Every week we'll be posting podcast clips from your favorite episodes, content that might be easy and helpful for you to share with your friends and some fun behind the scenes moments. You don't want to miss it. But all of that said, today we are reading Proverbs 5. So if you haven't yet read, pause the episode, read, and come back. The biggest lesson in today's reading is this. Knowing what is right and being able to articulate it is key. I've told this story before on the podcast, but it's been a while, and I think it really illustrates today's point. So bear with me if you've heard it before. But back when I was in the Watermark Institute, it was our first week of class. All of us students were so nervous, we wanted to make a great impression, but apparently some of us more than others. During welcome week, we were all in a big circle playing a game with our new teams, our new coworkers, our new bosses, and this game was called Over the Mountain. It's very similar to Never Have I Ever. Uh, Someone would stand in the middle and say, Over the Mountain if, fill in the blank, you've never been skiing. And everyone who had never been skiing would stand up and have to run around and find a new seat. Whoever was left without a seat would have to provide a new prompt over the mountain if. And at one point in this game, one of my classmates said over the mountain if you didn't memorize your summer verses. Essentially, this classmate was outing everyone who didn't complete their homework. Now, Given that memorizing the summer verses was an expectation, and it was the first week of class, a bunch of people got up to change seats, and so the game was stopped, and it was turned into a lesson. And in this lesson, various classmates who claimed to have completed the homework, to have memorized the Bible verses, were called on to recite them. Essentially, nobody was flying under the radar. You were about to be exposed if you didn't do your homework. And the expectation was that you, that you should be able to share or recite these Bible verses confidently, without stuttering, without second guessing. You were supposed to know them like you know your own name. One classmate, for example, tried to recite a verse, but he was stuttering. He, he, he knew it loosely, but he got stuck. It was in the back of his mind somewhere, but he couldn't quite get it out. And that wasn't good enough. The key wasn't just knowing what was right, like knowing he should have done his homework. And the key wasn't just being familiar with the verse, being able to recite the first half confidently and stumble on the second. 
The key to success was knowing what was right and being able to articulate it. And that principle or definition of success is very important because in today's proverb, we learn that knowing what is right and being able to articulate it is key to combating the power of the seductress's speech. Nobody wants to be half prepared when it comes to fighting against temptation. Nobody wants to almost win when it comes to fleeing from temptation. And you know why? Because in those instances, you aren't half prepared. You are unprepared. You didn't almost win. There's no second place with sin. You just lost. So in today's proverb, we learn that the key to combating the allure of the forbidden woman in Proverbs is not just to know what is right, but to also be able to articulate it in the face of temptation, to be able to do it. Verses 1 through 6 read, My son, be attentive to my wisdom, incline your ear to my understanding, that you may keep discretion, and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is as bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life, and her ways wander, and she does not know it. In regard to these verses, one commentator, Dr. Constable, says this, Knowing what is right and being able to articulate that with one's lips is really a protection against the power of the seductress's speech. That's verses 1 through 6. The temptress comes with words that are sweet, flattering, and smooth, delightful. Nevertheless, if swallowed, they make the person being tempted by them feel bitter or ashamed and wounded, hurt. That's verse 4. Even flirting produces this effect sometimes. There's an old saying, honey is sweet, but the bee stings, and this lady has a sting in her tail. Typically, the seductress will lead a person down a path that takes him or her to death in the grave. Verse 5. Though one can experience a living death as a result of following her too, she has no concern with living a truly worthwhile life, but only with gaining some immediate physical and emotional thrill. That's verse 6. So what's his point? The adulterous woman in Proverbs or the seductress woman in Proverbs is going to sound really alluring. When it comes to sexual temptation or sexual sin, it's going to seem like a really, really, really good idea. But when you give in, you probably feel guilty. You feel bad. It's not a good situation. That's verse four. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Sure, you probably won't drop dead if you give in to this type of temptation. That's the commentator's point. But if you give in, you definitely won't be living a full life. And in this proverb in particular, the forbidden woman represents anyone who isn't your spouse. It's the allure of intimacy outside of the marriage covenant. Verses 7 through 13 read, And now, O sons, listen to me, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her, and do not go near to the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless, lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life you groan, and when your flesh and your body are consumed and you say, How I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof, I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. As the same commentator I quoted earlier continues, he writes, The price of unfaithfulness is not just physical disease, verse 11, though that may be part of it in many cases, but total personal ruin. 
infidelity dissipates all of one's powers, verse 9. Others will exploit him, verses 9 and 10. He will hate himself, verses 11 through 13. And he will quite possibly suffer ruin in his community, verses, verse 14. It's his reputation. Verse 9b would fit a situation involving blackmail, a not uncommon accompaniment to marital unfaithfulness. Now, I would think we'd all agree that none of us want those consequences. Yet at the same time, none of us are immune to the temptations that surround intimacy outside of the marriage covenant. So what's the solution? Well, it's verses 15 through 23. And for sake of time, I won't read them. But if you want, you can pause the episode and read them again yourself. However, in regard to verses 15 through 23, one commentator says this. Verses 15 through 23 point out a better way, namely fidelity to one's marriage partner. Strict faithfulness need not result in unhappiness or failure to experience what's best in life as the world likes to try to make us think. Rather, it guards us from the heartbreak and tragedy that accompany promiscuity. The figures of a cistern and well refer to one's wife, that's verse 15, who satisfies desire. The erotic languages of verses 19 through 20 may be surprising, catch us off guard, but they show that God approves of sexual joy in marriage and that it is a prophylactic against unfaithfulness. See 1 Corinthians 7, 5 or verse 9. A man can either find his exhilaration in his wife or in another woman. The same Hebrew word reads go astray in verse 23b. The issue is self-discipline empowered by God's Spirit, the commentator continues. We don't really understand the meaning of the phrase God is love, 1 John 4, 8, until we understand that life is fundamentally relationships. In plenitude of relationships is fullness of life, having a lot. Paucity of relationship is impoverishment of life, having few relationships. Lack of discipline, as we read in chapter 5, verse 23, is better than lack of instruction. People usually do not become unfaithful to their spouses because they do not know better, but because they do not choose better. And that right there is a great place to end. People usually do not become unfaithful to their spouses because they do not know better, but because they do not choose better. The key to success isn't just knowing what's right, it's being able to do it. That said, I'd imagine today's reading hits many of us differently. For some of us, we've watched our parents or other family members have affairs or get divorced, and it's heavy. We've seen firsthand what happens when the wisdom of Proverbs 5 isn't followed. And others of us, we've lived it, or we're on the verge of living it. We've personally known what is right and chosen to make one poor choice after another. And then I think there's a third group of us. We know what's right. We're around a lot of godly people. And we think that could never be me. I'd never be that person. But to you, I'd remind you of 1 Corinthians 10, 12. And really, I'd remind myself. 1 Corinthians 10, 12 reads, So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. It's a good warning. But nonetheless, the good news for all of us, regardless of which group we we categorize ourselves into, is that if you are a believer in Christ, your sins have been washed by the blood of Christ. He has defeated death and sin. And if you are a believer, you have God's Spirit living in you. So there's comfort and strength to meet you in heartbreak, Isaiah 41.10. 
There's conviction and justice paired with grace and mercy to meet you in sin, Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. And there's hope that no matter where or how you find yourself responding to this proverb, whether you are arrogant, sad, convicted, or ashamed, his mercies are new every morning, Lamentations 3. Thanks be to God that we serve a God who meets us where we are and offers us living water day after day. So as always, I'm so glad we're all on this journey reading the Bible together. Hey, we want to thank you for listening and we hope you enjoyed the episode. Did you know that you can help support Join the Journey by rating and reviewing this podcast? And if you're willing, we'd love it if you subscribe because the more you download, the easier it will be for new friends to find the podcast.